is there a role for ivermectin in COVID right now? And if you, if there is, where do you see that role? Um, no, the only role is in the trash because yeah, yeah. <laughs> great answer. <laughs> because ivermectin has a role in infectious diseases for treating other infections. This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's a hundred k to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay Z. Farm so hard, let's get What's paid. What's good, fam? It's your host Jim Pruitt, aka Farm Dean Ed, and I'm bringing you another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. And of course, I have another special episode for you guys today. We're going to be talking about the ivermectin for COVID. Yes, guys, stop horsing around. This is going to be the episode that we have. And we're going to get this information from our live webinar that we did in the PACU. I'm just giving you guys a sneak peek of that. So please go check it out. But we're going to be having our, our infectious disease pharmacy panel where I have people that's been a little bit of everywhere. They've done PGY2s in infectious disease. So they know what they're talking about. So it's not going to be a lot of me talking today, guys. I really want to go ahead and jump to introducing our infectious disease guests. Hi, everyone. My name is Michelle Maxim. Um, I'm an infectious disease slash HIV pharmacist. Um, I did undergrad at the University of Georgia, go dogs, um, PGY1, well, pharmacy school at MUSC, um, PGY1 at Wake Forest, Baptist Health in Winston-Salem. Um, did my PGY2 and ID at Grady, and I'm currently practicing um, HIV and ID in the outpatient setting. Uh, my name is Elena DeCurligan. Um, I did my undergrad at UL in Lafayette, Louisiana, my hometown um, pharmacy school at Xavier University in New Orleans, then went on to do my PGY1 with the one and only Jimmy Pruitt at Advent Health in Orlando. Um, and then my PGY2 at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. Infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship uh, clinical specialist. And I've been on the COVID task force um, since the beginning. So um, it's been a wild ride. All right, Theora. Yes. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Theora Canonica. I uh, I'm also an ID pharmacist. <laughs> Um, the road to getting there, though. So I did my undergrad at the University of Central Florida and pharmacy school at the University of Florida. So go Gators. For PGY1, I, I was also at Advent Health Orlando, just a year behind these these guys, um, and went on to do my PGY2 in infectious diseases at the Tampa Veterans Hospital. And now I'm currently the inpatient infectious diseases Specialist and antimicrobial stewardship program manager at the San Francisco Veterans Hospital. So hello from the West Coast. Perfect. So we have a host of knowledge that's going to span all of the U.S. at this point, inpatient, outpatient. Um, that's why I was super excited to have this because I unfortunately get to see the, the bad part when we don't listen to smart people like those on my panel right now. And I get to get those patients, intubate them and have to deal with them coughing all over the vent and doing different things. But we're going to talk about something that's come up and I would say has been very, very intriguing over the last, I would say four to six months, really. we It was out there before, but people are very emotional about ivermectin. 
Um, it's something that when I did the mic check earlier today, I told them I recently had a patient who decided to try a different route of administration with the ivermectin paste and utilize it in the PR or rectum form and utilize it that way and was having a ton of uh, GI distress due to that. So uh, very intriguing to say the least. But let's get into some of these talking points. Uh, Michelle, can you start us off? Can you just tell us where this even come from? Where did ivermectin for COVID come from? Yeah, sure. So if we go back to February 2020, which is when we actually came together at my previous job to develop guidelines, this was basically before um, there were even any known patients in the U.S., right? So we were discussing with our colleagues in Italy and in China, um, just trying to get any information that they had on how they were treating these patients. Um And so what we were finding out is, well, let's just look at what was previously done with SARS-CoV-1 or other coronaviruses and how those were treated. And that's kind of how we generally approach a lot of these new infectious diseases. Um, And so with that being said, um, you had the hydroxychloroquine, you had all of these other different um, agents and ivermectin wasn't really in the forefront. Um, because it wasn't used for treatment um, of the previous coronaviruses, such as SARS-CoV-1 or SARS or MERS. Um, But the same school of thought is that if it has some type of cellular function and some type of viral process, um, then it could possibly, possibly theoretically be used. Um, so essentially, ivermectin has been studied with different viruses like HIV, um, dengue virus, um, but it's known for treatment in, um, you know, parasitic infections. So um, like strongyloides and scabies. Um, so Basically, there was an in vitro study or basically a study that looked at ivermectin in some tubes and um, it showed a reduction in viral load. But what you see in a tube does not equal what you see in an actual person, nor does it equate to the safety and efficacy of that same drug in a human being, which is why we don't go from tube directly into onto the market. There's a whole process that we have to follow, and that's for the safety and efficacy of um, the human race, basically. Um, so that's kind of how the idea came about. Something was published. And again, in March, um, April, you know, May, around that time, we were grasping for straws. We were trying to figure out what can we do to treat these patients. And so everybody was reading everything, trying to understand, you know, what we could use and that came up, right? An in vitro study where ivermectin decreased viral load and people ran with it. So um, I won't step on toes and go into studies just yet, but um, that's kind of how ivermectin came to the table. So this is interesting because we've seen this type of behavior with COVID and I've come to call it COVID quality. We just (laughs) try to find a way to do something and we've made it COVID quality. for all of our, our our guests that are on and, and the listeners, we've seen this in other disease states and other specialties. I think one of the things that comes up quite often is the fact that in vitro, uh, hemonc, like this cancer in general, we've killed 
we've killed cancer with every drug in the world with highest concentrations in vitro. You know, we've, we've done that thousands of times. And now we still have a, you know, second or third highest call of death is going to be cancer. So I, I'm intrigued that we jumped shipped so quickly when we know and we have a lot of smart people who've looked at this type of behavior before. But um, as we move forward, yeah, we didn't all jump ship. Let me yeah. say, <laughs> I, I would say just the community, the the, the, a lot of the, some smart people in the community decided to do this. And so the big thing that I've been seeing is the dosing because we're, we're, we're trying to make this based off of dosing we found in vitro. Can you do, can you talk about the dosing of ivermectin? Is, is it even enough to reach those concentrations? Because I think this is intriguing that we actually even go this route. Yeah, so this is definitely a very critical component to talk about. I have some basic slides that I'll go through here just so you guys have something to look at besides my face. Um, So in general, what we have to start with is what do we see for normal ivermectin dosing? Typically, patients get somewhere around um, 200 micrograms per kilogram um, as a dose. The average dose is somewhere around 12 milligrams. And what we know from prior studies is you're getting somewhere of a peak around 30 to 45. So um, the study that Michelle brought up previously, that initial in vitro study that showed that we might have some inhibition of our replication. Um, So what that study found was an IC50 or the inhibitory concentration for to inhibit 50% of viral replication um, comes up somewhere between two and three micromoles. So I did not do these calculations. Other smarter people than me did these calculations, but this would correlate to concentrations in the body of between two to 4,000 nanograms per ml. So as we saw previously, we get 30 to 45. So this is nowhere close um, with standard doses. And the highest studied dose of ivermectin that I could find from a safety perspective is 120 milligrams, and that gave a peak of around 250. Still, at least 10 times less of a concentration than we would need for actually inhibiting viral replication for COVID. Um, So then I wanted to look at, so what studies um, for ivermectin exist so far and what are those doses? All right, so this is a table that I put together that just shows the the doses that were used in all the studies that I could find. I wanted to give a good representation of all the different methods that have been studied. And this also kind of will correlate to later why there's so much confusion with ivermectin. These are all the millions of different dosing strategies that have been studied with ivermectin so far. It goes anywhere from about 12 milligrams to somewhere an average of 42 milligrams per dose and anywhere from one to five days. Some of the studies, even a dose on day one and then a dose at day seven at physician discretion. Um, That happened in a couple studies. So the dosing goes a little bit all over the place. Um, And We do know based on prior in vitro um, and PK calculations that this would not come anywhere close to that concentration you would need to actually inhibit um, SARS-CoV-2 in vitro. I think it's really cool that you you bring this graph here and everyone can see that 
We're just going to throw a, throw a, a nickel up in the air and just say, okay, let's just pretend that we know what dosing that we're talking about. And I think it's very intriguing that we're, we're trying to get there, but it seems that we're anywhere from 171 to 600 mics per kilo. It is just all over the place. So I want to get into something that you guys probably do really well and talk about some of the limitations of these studies. And we don't have to go too deep into this, but Theora, can you like this, from your general, just look at things, what's, how do you describe like the weaknesses of these studies? Uh, well, as we just went through, one of yeah. them is definitely the dosing, yeah. um, which is problematic for a lot of reasons, but it's very, very inconsistent. And having a consistent dose is really key to like, what do we do in practice? Another limitation that's just very common amongst all these studies is a lot of them are open label, they're retrospective, their outcomes are not very much defined. And one that's very critical is the severity of the patient's illness. Um, so by even if it had a positive outcome, we don't know, is it patients with you know very mild symptoms very early on in their clinical course? Is it severe symptoms? So it's very hard to kind of delineate, well, even if it works, well, which patient should get it and when? Because as yeah. we see with our standard of care, timing is so important. Uh, and in addition to that, it's it's usually very small sample sizes, which again, that doesn't help if you happen to see outliers where something's positive or outliers where something negative. So trying to really make sense of all that data is, is very difficult when it's just very inconsistent from study to study is really the bottom line. Absolutely. Misha, what, what's your thoughts as well? Because again, I'm, I'm looking at some of the studies and I'm pulling up on my other screen here. What I want to know is like, does any of these studies show harm so far? Because I'm seeing something a little different in my ERs and I'm just I'm talking to some tox people. But have you seen anything that show that this can be essentially harmful with the random doses that we're giving? Um, so you caught me because I wanted to talk about the one study that showed mortality benefit, which I feel like a lot of people um, harp on. So there was actually a patient's family who um, went all the way up to, you know, C-suite. Oh, wow. You know, wanting ivermectin was against our guidelines, um, you know, just based on the lack of data, you know, that showed a benefit, right? And so for people who don't read studies for a living, um, it's important to be reminded that if you have a quality study, right, you should be able to replicate that study and get the same type of outcomes um, and show the same types of things, right? So if you're telling me that out of 20 studies, there's like one study that shows a mortality benefit, why didn't the other 19 show a mortality benefit? What are we missing in this one study and all of these confounders, if you will? So like what was already mentioned, dosing is different. They were also on other medications that could have potentially caused them to, you know, have worse outcomes, right? Ivermectin, to get to your point, um, you know, is not a benign drug. No drug is benign, right? So although rare, you could end up with a very severe skin infect or skin condition that will land you in the burn unit in a hospital. It could also cause hepatic injury that may or may not be reversible. It's really important. Yeah, you might have nausea from the ivermectin, but if you have 20 plus studies or however many studies there are in total, 
And one of them is showing a mortality benefit, their quotes. Why aren't the other 19 showing that? And are you ready to hang your hat on this one study that wasn't even the you know, highest level study to say that I'm going to take ivermectin? And that's the thing. I think it's intriguing. And again, I, I spoke about mine earlier of a patient having severe uh, diarrhea due to the fact that they were using ivermectin paste for horses, placing them in a suppository and using them per rectum. And I reached out to some of my tox buddies. They've had some people become severely altered from taking extremely high doses. We're talking uh, 60 and 60 plus milligrams of ivermectin that they were taking, but it just didn't seem rational to me to try to take per rectum ivermectin paste. Um, So that's intriguing to say the least. I think the other thing that I wanted to bring up is that if you actually have COVID, you're wasting time, right? So I know people in the neuro world, time is brain or that's what they say, right? Yeah, Yeah. time is brain. Um, But similar to like um, infections and shock and, you know, sepsis, you have to get patients on the right medications Mm -hmm. like early enough to make a difference, right? To save their lives. And so it's worrisome to know that people will, oh, I have COVID. Let me try to take ivermectin and see if that helps my symptoms before actually going to the hospital. Oh, wait, but maybe now I'm short of breath, but let me take ivermectin first. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's insane. But again, before I get to my last question, Elena, I want to come back to you for a second. And I just want to go a little bit deeper into that one study. I know you had some stuff pulled. Can we just bring, can we just bring it to the audience, the, that, that study and just go through it a little bit. We have, we're making decent time. I want to talk about that, uh, that study that was done that got, I'm not going to spoil your, your thunder, but <laughs> that, that very interesting study. Can we just talk about that a little bit more before we move forward? Yeah. Um, so this is a great point to discuss for sure. Um, and as was said previously, first off, you should have any red flags anytime. No other study finds the same finding. In this particular study, it was Elgazar and colleagues. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but um, it was first uh, available as a preprint in November of 2020, and it showed a 99% reduction in mortality. So Mortality with the standard of care group was 99% versus 0% in the ivermectin group. Um, So everyone was reviewing this study in great detail. There were multiple re-releases of it with edits. um, And when the full data was submitted for actual review, it was identified that so many things were wrong with it. Um, Most importantly, I think being that... um, They were copying data between patients. So there was the same weird like misspellings throughout (laughs) the entire data collection. And it's not like a, it was reviewed by statisticians and it was not deemed that those misspellings of very strange ways would just occur naturally um, and that it was copied data. Mm. Um, Some patients had... um, so they had plagiarism throughout the actual like publication itself, but most importantly, what um, was reported is that um, they were duplicating actual patients. Wow. So there were 
like five instances of a 51 year old male admitted on the same date with COVID, the same exact symptoms upon presentation. Um, several of the other factors were the same in the exact same date of death. Um, so you will not um, by nature have the exact same um, everything for multiple patients admitted on the same day, dying on the same day, every single characteristic the same. And they found that throughout the entire study um, and duplicated patients made up at least half of the deaths, likely more. Um, so most of this data was falsified. And this really goes back to quality in research, um, reliability of data, ethical considerations. Um, it was also found that they didn't publish the study on the cl clinical trials website until after they had completed the study and published their initial results. Um, and it seemed like, um, based on the timing, they didn't actually get ethics approval before doing the study. Anytime you do um, a randomized clinical trial, you have to go through ethics approval to make sure that everything is above board. Um, so across everything with this study, it seems like basically every step was done wrong, unethically, um, no real reliability of this data. And that's why um, we know, like, based on every other study that has come out afterwards, this outcome was not reproduced even slightly. Um, so I think that's really important to consider, but this study has caused so much, so much damage. And it really just reminds me of the beginning of the anti-vaxxer campaign with um, Andrew Wakefield's study, which showed that vaccines cause autism. It was all falsified data, but we can't get that thought out of people's minds. And I feel like that is exactly what has happened here with this study, which is unfortunate. Yeah, so it, I, I, I had to go back to, um, let me see if I can cancel out of here now. I just think it's intriguing. I, I watch Family Guy and people say, he's a big fat phony. He's a big fat phony. And that's what I think about this study uh -huh. is that it's a, it's a big fat phony. And I just think it's amazing. Like I'm actually impressed by how well they messed this up. <laughs> like I, I, I'm not phenomenal at research and I'm going to admit that my, my mentor, John Packer, he, he, he told me. <laughs> You have to you have to choose, Jimmy. You have to choose to be a researcher <laughs> here or you have to, you know, really develop yourself from at the bedside. And I, I chose bedside for a reason. This is actually impressive. The fact that they was able to make up so many things and it was OK and no one caught on to it. So but this is one of the studies that's in tons of meta-analyses that show benefit. It's in everyone always referenced this study. And it's amazing that no one even noticed that it, it, it was retracted in July. <laughs> so yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. I'm definitely impressed by the fact that how well they was able to, uh, I shouldn't say falsify data. I, I should just say that. Falsify that, data. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious they copied and pasted yeah. data. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> per rectum, uh, ivermectin probably didn't actually read the study or all of the follow-up behind that. So it's but so before I move on, I just want to put out there is is there a role right now? And I want I want to hear from Dara first before we before we go into the next. Is there a role for ivermectin in COVID right now? And if you if there is, where do you see that role? 
Um, no, the only role is in the trash because yeah, yeah. <laughs> great answer. <laughs> because ivermectin has a role in infectious diseases for treating other infections, but I think we made a pretty good case here today for why really there is no role and why our major guidelines covering COVID, like the NIH and the IDSA, all say there is no data to support recommending this for anybody in COVID. Um, because as you saw, the dosing's all over the place. The data is a mess. There's fake studies literally out there that show that it's good. So really at the end of the day, there is no role for this drug in COVID. Do, do, do any of you ladies have a different uh, approach or opinion when it comes to where we should see ivermectin? Because I think people like to uh, make it pretty with what they want to, but this is my platform. So you guys can say whatever you want to say, to be honest. No, I think I think what was already said was perfect. It's there are indications for drugs and ivermectin that should not be listed under COVID-19. Perfect. Perfect. So you guys got to hear a good bit of our live webinar on pharmacy and acute care universities, a live webinar on ivermectin for COVID. So I'm going to go ahead and stop it there just to save you guys some time on this wonderful day. It's really, it's really interesting when you hear the different stories and I've been sent some very interesting emails from people and, and I, I get it. We should know more. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there. There are some studies that may support some benefit. There are some studies that says that it's not necessarily beneficial. Uh, for me, I just sit back until the data tells me one thing. And I just think it's intriguing. This has been something that has really changed the way I practice just from who I listen to, what I look at, and just sitting back and letting the data really push me towards one way versus the other. And I really, really don't listen to people say anymore because the data is going to say one thing and I'm going to combine that with my clinical practice and what people who I trust says, because there's so many things now that are influencing the way we look at things and how we interpret data. So uh, that's my two cents about that. But guys, if you're looking to support the podcast, definitely come and reach out and leave a comment, uh, leave a rate, rate us, make sure you're subscribed to it. And if you really enjoy it, let your friends know. Good friends don't let other friends go without an entertaining and educational podcast. So make sure you share this with someone. And if you want more, we have more stuff that we can do for you guys and to pack you in pharmacy and acute university. Again, that's going to be all that's going to be on our show notes. And we're releasing this episode during uh, National Pharmacy Week. This is going to be something I'm super proud of. All the people who have been part of pharmacy, whether you're a technician, you drive the bus to drop the meds off, anyone that's involved within pharmacy, I want to thank you guys for all you've done for me. And I promise I'm trying my best to show you guys how grateful I am by the type of material that I produce and the things that I have for you guys now. But I'm going to go ahead and end it and say, you don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't have to work in the ED, but everything you do, make sure you farm so hard. Yeah, 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 yeah.